The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawk Box this Wednesday morning. We've got a full house here. Arabile's covering a lot of the markets. Good morning to you, Good sir. Good morning. Uh, we've even got Arjun out of bed early to have a look at the tech earnings. Nice to see you. Good morning, Steve. Right, so tech earnings getting off to a tough start. Alphabet reporting a beat across the board, uh, but a miss on cloud revenue, sending the shares 6% lower after hours. The CEO, Sundar Pichai, says he's pleased with opportunities that AI is presenting. Better fortunes, though, for Microsoft, the stock rising 4% in extended trade. That's thanks to a big boost from its cloud business, as sales for the key division come in 19% higher than a year ago. We're still on the earnings front out in Europe. Deutsche Bank raises its capital outlook as the German lender posts a 3% rise in third quarter net revenue. That's driven by double-digit growth and its corporate banking division. We'll hear from the CFO, that's James von Moltke. It's happening in 30 minutes' time. Luxury giant Kering loses its shine. The House of Gucci posting a 9% drop in third quarter sales driven by a slowdown in its North American market. And the debacle in D.C. drags on. House Republicans selecting Mike Johnson as their fourth speaker nominee. That's the fourth after Majority Whip Tom Emma uh, ends his bid just four hours after winning the nomination. Right, we are really in amongst it on the corporate reporting on both sides of the Atlantic. So let's do a bit of a, a deep dive into the tech earnings. Uh, two of the world's largest tech names uh, had mixed fortunes in their third quarter earnings releases. Alphabet uh, sharply lower after hours despite a top and bottom line beat after the Google parents' cloud unit missed revenue estimates by circa $200 million. Uh, customers cutting back on spending. Over at Microsoft, though, they beat Wall Street estimates for its fiscal first quarter, reporting a 27% increase in net income as operating expense growth slowed. Revenue for the company's intelligent cloud segment came in over $24 billion, uh, well above estimates, driven by 29% growth in revenue from Azure, which the company expects to remain stable in coming quarters as contributions from AI, artificial intelligence, continue to grow. But let's get to Arjun on this one. Arjun, this is actually really fascinating um, because, and, and excuse me if I'm oversimplifying it, this is a, a battle between two titans, in fact, not between themselves, they're just they're battling everyone else as well. But, but cloud is where we focus there on the revenues that beat, the revenues that miss. But actually, cloud enhanced by the latest uh, whiz-bang new technology, AI, is, is where they're saying, well, look, we're actually beginning, and I find this really fascinating, that Microsoft is one of the few companies I've heard about talking about AI, not because it's some uh, thing for the future that may help them, but actually they're monetizing here and now. Spot on, Steve. That is a, is a perfect way to enter this. And I think that the, the key here is the context, Alphabet, 
If you look at the shares up 57% year to date coming into this report, Microsoft up about 38%, expectations were high. And so, yes, if you look at Alphabet, it was pretty good in terms of YouTube ads, in terms of being resilient in a tough ad market, etc. But where does that next leg of growth come to justify Alphabet's valuation? It is in cloud, and it's important here, uh, those two themes. It's, it's, it's the cloud computing, and it's the AI-enhanced cloud computing. And when we heard uh, what Microsoft talked about, um, you know, Amy Hood, the CFO, was saying that there was better-than-expected AI usage that actually led to three percentage point growth in Azure, and so that was key. And that is the fact that Microsoft is able to monetize all these investments it's been making in cloud with OpenAI and some of the new products. Uh, on the flip side, Alphabet hasn't yet had a huge sort of uh, massive impact to its revenues uh, from cloud. Um, and if you look at, uh, in terms of the growth rates, Google Cloud was up around 22% year on year in terms of revenue, but only about $226 million uh, in profit uh, and that was key you flip that over and look at Microsoft uh, Azure was up 29% year on year it's overall intelligent uh, cloud unit bringing in uh, operating income of 11.75 billion and so when you're an investor looking at this where am I gonna uh, do the cloud play where am I gonna uh, make money on AI clearly Microsoft emerging here as an early leader yeah Alphabet I mean putting out that 8 billion dollar uh, capex though in that third quarter right but the shares didn't necessarily feel too good, even though there was that beat on the top and, and the bottom line. And one would wonder then, why? You're still saying that AI story is ultimately the one that's going to drive things. Yes, they don't give a guidance per se. And revenues are still necessarily looking all right. But is it because it, it tempers expectations as well on entirely things like cost optimization in that third quarter? I think with, with Google there's, uh, or with Alphabet, there's a couple of things. The, the market was intensely focused on its cost last year. Um, and uh, coming into this year, you've seen big rounds of job cuts and it's yeah. done better on the cost front. But they're happy, the market, I think, to give Google that, that space yes. to invest in AI because they know uh, it's, a, it's a big area. Uh, in terms of cost optimization, you know, we know the mar uh, in terms of cloud spend, businesses are still cutting uh, back. I think the, the issue is, you know, uh, with uh, Google Cloud, it showed strong growth, definitely 22% year on year. But the problem there is really the profitability front, I think, at this point, as investors are becoming a little bit more, uh, I'd say, specific and, and picky with the kind of uh, stocks they want going forward uh, in a continually high interest rate environment. When you're looking at these kind of growth stocks, Alphabet needs to justify that. And while their core ad business continues to remain resilient, I think ultimately the underlying point here is um, what is the next leg of growth for Alphabet? Many have put their bets on it being AI and cloud, but that's just not materializing yet. Um, a lot of uh, investors looking forward to, to what Alphabet's coming out with. It's got a new uh, so-called AI foundational model called Gemini in the works, which is uh, looking to be released pretty soon. Um, and they're hoping that could really ignite uh, some of that AI growth that the market's wanting to see uh, from Alphabet. Um, the share prices, though, I mean, I know that this is a, a, a bad after hours for Google, Apple, a big one, Alphabet. <laughs> ABC. Google, yeah, Google Alphabet. There you go. Uh, and a good after hours for Microsoft. But actually, year to date, they've both oh, been yeah. stellar. In fact, uh, Google Alphabet, nothing to do with Alphabet, uh, uh, Apple, I'll get this right in a minute, um, is actually a 20% outperformance before last night's moves as well. And then I look at the valuations. Um, Microsoft trades on 28 times forward and uh, Alphabet, Google, trades on 20.6 times forward. 
Now, bearing in mind there's a lot that's going right to Alphabet, Google as well. What are, what are people saying about these two companies? I mean, that's a great chart, by the way. Thanks, Adam. Um, great performance, both of them. But Alphabet's had, <coughs> excuse me, the outperformance on this one as well. Any thoughts from the analysts or the investment community? Yeah, I think with Alphabet, it was the fact that um, mm. they had a pretty rough 2022. They made the cost cuts. Uh, and what, what actually apparently uh, looked at happening this year was that they may remain resilient in, in what was supposed to be a tough ad market. They continued to eke out strong growth. And I think that was really supported in that at a rough uh, last year and so you saw a bit of a rebound in alphabet and i think it's it's one uh, on the the sort of resilience in the core ad business but i think too it, it is a bit about the hope at this point that alphabet is going to be one of the key players here in AI. Um, and uh, that's really, I think, where the outperformances come from. Uh, people knew what they were getting with Microsoft. And, and I think to some extent, they were looking at Alphabet as one that could be the outperformer in, in the new age of AI. And that's, that's yet to be seen yet. Arjun, thank you. We're still going to unpack this quite a lot as well uh, across the show. So we will see you a bit later. Still on the tech front, though, Snap posted 5% revenue growth for its third quarter after two straight quarters of declines. The social media firm also beating bottom line expectations with earnings per share of $0.02 a share versus forecasts for a loss. The stock initially spiked 20% after hours but dipped after the company said it has seen a large number of advertising campaigns pause in the current quarter. That's in the wake of conflict in the Middle East. And Visa has posted a beat on fourth quarter revenue, but missed on earnings. Nevertheless, the group pointed towards a resilient consumer outlook with payment volume jumping 9%. The CEO says he expects 2024 to be Visa's first normal year in a while, as it fully absorbs the impact of its exit from Russia, as well as inflation continuing. To moderate. Um, I've got something to say about Visa a little bit later on as well. I think it's, it's a fascinating set of numbers, and of course, it's a mirror onto the US consumer. So we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Right, Deutsche Bank, very mixed set of numbers. Um, Sylvie's working very hard on Deutsche Bank today. She's doing a lot of work. She's speaking to the CFO as well. I'll come to that in a few moments' time. Um, I think it's mixed. I think there's something for the bulls and the bears in this one as well. Um, posted an 8% drop in third quarter profit. Some analysts say not as steep as expected. Revenue, though, falling um, at the investment bank, despite the corporate and retail divisions looking pretty solid. But I, I, I've been you know, kind of following the numbers as well. I've had a good look through them as well. Asset management, net revenues down 10% uh, in uh, the third quarter, down 10% year on year as well. And there's a couple of areas I didn't like as well. I think the road looks underwhelming compared to, look, we're talking to Andrea Ocell in the last 24 hours over Unicredit. You've got a road there, return on tangible equity of 18%. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure it's an 18% handle. handle. You might not correct me if I'm wrong on that one. I don't think I am. And yet you've got a road here of 7.3% return on tangible equity compared to 8.2% a year ago. Plus, I don't like the cost base. I, I know that there's, there's subsets and what have you, but the cost-income ratio, 72%. Think about that. Your cost, just in pure basic terms, 72% uh, of your uh, income is eaten up by costs. Looks high to me. And again, we've got numbers coming out from Santander, uh, and I think you're looking at those, aren't you, as well? Yeah. I, I, is there a cost-income ratio to hand? Because uh, I just want to do the comparing. If there isn't, don't worry about it. Not to hand. All right, Not well, to I'll hand. have another little look as well. But I... I Got to be honest, I don't like a seven-handle cost-income ratio at any yeah. bank. And I know that's because you've got a lot of very, very highly paid bankers not doing as many deals. Yeah. Um, 
it's tough. Which they'll continue to complain about. Hopefully, we'll get word from Sylvia with regards to that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what do you got from Santander? So Santander is saying then that they have managed to uh, rather keep their 2023 target uh, as they put out their earnings then. Uh, the nine-month figures were being fairly interesting. This is after interest income has managed to boost uh, some of their profits. Uh, total revenue climbing 10% then to 14.86 billion euros. I was mainly driven then by higher net interest income, which I suppose is happening uh, across for many of the lenders. Just a question mark around uh, how far this could go as they obviously have to pass on some costs as well. The difference between what the bank earns on loans, of course, and what they pay clients for deposits. Now, on a more muted increase, of course, uh, net interest income climbed to 11.22 billion euros uh, in the third quarter. Uh, that's from 10.5 billion then in the second. Uh, net profit, as I said, 2.7 billion euros, that is. Uh, they, the I mean, bank had, rather had wanted a 2.9 billion uh, billion euro mark there. Uh, very interesting to note. The bank said its 2023 targets, including double-digit growth in revenue and a return on tangible equity, uh, do remain on track. That would be a more than 15% uptick they would get then. Um, on their tangible equity front. So, very interesting numbers for Santander. Uh, coming up on the show, more big European names reporting earnings this morning. We'll be breaking the numbers from the likes of Lloyds and Heineken in the next hour. Also to Riyadh, where Dan Murphy uh, is hosting a key panel at the FII Summit. He'll be speaking to the Saudi Finance Minister Mohammed bin Abdullah al Jadan, as well as the IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva. That's coming up at 9.15 Central European time. And as Deutsche Bank posts a 5 billion euro nine-month pre-tax profit, we'll bring you Sylvia's one-to-one with the CFO, James von Moltke. That's coming up. Uh, we'll do that in around about 16, 17 minutes' time. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. SM International has posted a beat on third quarter revenue, even as orders came in below last year's level and market conditions continue to remain soft. The Dutch chip equipment maker cited strong contributions from China for the quarter and stressed it does not expect any, quote, material impact from the latest U.S. chip restrictions. Um, luxury goods space, absolutely fascinating at the moment. You've had disappointing LVMH, you've had strong Hermes as well. But what about... Um, Gucci, well, Caring, the owner, said sales fell 9% in the third quarter, missing estimates as a global slowdown in luxury spending weighs on profits. Sales at the group's two biggest brands, the aforementioned Gucci and Saint Laurent, uh, fell 14% and 16% respectively as well. Charlotte joins us with more. Lovely to see you. Look, I've got a theory, I've always had a theory, that actually luxury did this brilliant thing that luxury does, and that is rebranded itself a few years ago from fashion to luxury. Some people are ultimate luxury. The rest of it is fashion. Uh, and I think what we've seen from a lot of LVMH's numbers and what we're seeing now from Caring, and I don't want to preempt anything you're going to say, 
it's proving that it is fashion rather than luxury. Yes, and the problem with fashion is that it comes in and out of fashion. Boom. And that is exactly, it seems the problem with uh, Ad Kering, that we, as we know, they rely on Gucci very much. They seem to be have a bit of a double whammy at the moment. Of course, the slowdown that we see overall in luxury and the slowdown that they have in their own star brand, uh, Gucci, that we know had a stellar run uh, a few years ago, but that has been coming out of fashion, certainly, as we've seen. And so it's been reflected here in those numbers you were saying, uh, down 9% on a comparison basis. Gucci sells down 7%. But what was also slightly concerning for analysts is that some of the other brands have been helping getting to offset some of the slowdown outside Gucci. So these other brands like Yves Saint Laurent and Bottega Veneta have also slowed down. In Q3, Yves Saint Laurent down 12%, Bottega Veneta down 7%. So uh, yesterday, the CFO and deputy CEO of Kering was talking also about the impact of the change in wholesales that are being lower. They said they have a strategy behind this. They want to have a stricter control in distribution. So focusing on retail rather than the wholesale so it's having an impact there but certainly wholesale sales were 29% lower so that was worse than expected by analysts retail down at 6% and we know Gucci is under a reboot that the first show for under the new creative director Sabato de Sarno just in September for some analysts was a bit of an underwhelming reboot we know that Gucci had um, lucky reboots in the past with Tom Ford with Alessandro Bichele the question is can the, can the, the thunder hit uh, three, three times in the same place for Gucci well, what we saw is that maybe it was a little bit of an underwhelming reboot. And yesterday, the deputy CEO said that it's a bit too early to see the impact on the Gucci brand. We just had a new uh, interim CEO in charge of that brand, who's a right-hand man of uh, Monsieur Pinot. So th th there is a long-term strategy, certainly, at like Gucci. But short-term, there is a bit of a pain. They say in the U.S. in particular, North America sell down 21%. And here again, it says the aspirational consumer that is the most under pressure in that market. That's been reflected in those numbers. China, just up 1% Asia-Pacific. So again, we see a little bit of recovery there. It's not as bad as the other parts of the world, but certainly here we see again the uncertainty in the Chinese uh, market there. So it's all happening there, Gucci. We know they have a medium to long-term strategy. They change the structure of management. They launch a beauty division there with a massive acquisition with Creed, the perfumes, the high-end perfumes that acquired for a report of 3.5 billion euros. Uh, they bought a 30% stake in Valentino with the possibility, the option to buy it in full by 28. So they have a long-term strategy, but certainly short-term, it looks like there's going to be some <coughs> headaches, uh, specifically for Kering, that seem to be suffering more than the other luxury players. Um, yeah, and, and I love the way you did that at the end there, just the last couple of words, more than the luxury players as well. So, so we're being brutally honest now, where everything was luxury, but actually not everything is luxury. So finally, the investors are, are realizing, and t you know, to take a phrase from the jewelry, all that glistens is not gold as well. When I look at the valuations of these companies in the sector, uh, and we've got a long-term caring there as well, we've got a 12-month, as you were saying, under a lot of pressure already. This one trades at 13 times forward. LVMH trades at 20 times forward. Hermes trades at 40 times forward. So, so this is interesting. When you, we look at, when you and I will talk about Danone or we'll talk about um, Unilever or we'll talk about Nestle, honestly, it's wafer thin. It's wafer thin to take a Monty Python phrase. Wafer thin between the three. You know, big differences in how Danone, Nestle, and Unilever trade on a quarterly, quite quarterly basis. But actually, you get a little bit of tiny bit of space between them. These three, and I, actually, I didn't even know you guys would have that chart. So Adam, just nailing it today, as ever. Um, Massive. I mean, the trend looks the same, yeah. but the overall valuation yeah. is stunningly different. I'll say it again. Hermes trades double the forward PE of LVMH. LVMH trades at a 50% premium to the PE of caring. There's a lot going on here that you need yeah. to break down for us. 
And all, because all luxury players are not all the same, as we saw with the Hermes results yesterday, they are in a category of their own. It's high-end consumers, uh, much more resilient than other luxury players, caring, certainly much more exposed to the aspirational consumer. LVMH, obviously, the giant in the sector, uh, that seems to be able to reach both ends. So they have a bit of resilience built in because they reach out to the aspirational, but also to the high end. So they, they seem to be able to navigate both. But certainly here that we see that in term, when the moment of economic turmoil uncertainty the one that caters to high-end consumer receipt <coughs> doesn't suffer as much one more point and i know you know about this so i don't, I don't mind just jump springing this on you. you always look with trepidation when i do this you've got the arno family behind lvmh you've got the hermes family behind hermes obviously and you've got the pino family i think behind caring as well these are really lumpy shareholdings as well i just wonder what the you know, the latter the pino family are thinking about there the, the company with such, I mean, look, it's 48% Arno family ownership of LVMH. Uh, I think it's similar level, 40 odd percent, and I should find the number exactly, it's 40 odd percent the, the Pino family behind, um, yeah, 42% behind Caring, and the Hermes family owns 66% of Hermes. Is there any pressure on the ownership structure of Caring, do you think, because of their underperformance? Possibly. It's very interesting that the luxury sector is one of the sectors where you have these families yeah, that are still to be huge. controlling. It's very specific. And there's other companies like Prada, which is still the case as well. Is family, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and other companies still very much like that. So it's very interesting that this is part of the branding, part of a legacy, part of a heritage, part of a tradition. Actually, it's the same that comes Vindatex as well, isn't it? You kind of, yeah. You've got a, a family ownership there. Yeah. One, of the rich, one of the richest men in the world, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so yeah. Isn't that amazing that this, it's kind of like the consumer fashion stroke luxury sector is still dominated have by that these. that sort of family heritage. Yeah, that's really Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.